Now Luke's account is very short, very matter of fact. Jesus came to Simon's house. Simon's mother-in-law had a high fever. They appealed to Jesus on her behalf. He stood over her and rebuked the fever and left her. And then she immediately got up and served them. So Luke has likely heard this story from Peter himself. And so he tells the parts that to him are the important parts. One difference between Luke and Matthew Mark is that Matthew Mark just say it was a fever. Luke says it was a high fever. Uh, Luke, you will recall, was a physician. Especially when it comes to parts of his writings that involve healings, we do well to pay attention to his expertise and how he records these events. So Luke is not contradicting Matthew and Mark. All three agree there was a fever, but Luke is highlighting the fact that this was no mild fever. He does not have a thermometer, so he cannot tell us she was at 102 or 99.8 or whatever it was. But a high fever is a severe fever. In other words, she was not just a little sick, she was very ill. As we all may know from personal friends or family, sometimes what starts as a fever progresses to something even more serious and even death. How many sad stories do many of us know where someone had a fever and it turned out it was something like spinal meningitis that ultimately took the life of the one suffering? So this fever is very serious. They appeal to Jesus on her behalf. This may indicate she's too sick to even ask for herself. It's not clear to me that that's definitely the case, but certainly it's a possibility. We are given a privilege as that we also may appeal to Jesus on others' behalf. Indeed, we are to bring petitions and concerns to him. Our first concern to uh, when we're praying for all others should be their eternal state. That should be our first concern. So we can appeal to Jesus to save those who we encounter, those we love, those we care for. But we may also ask him to alleviate pain and suffering. And we ourselves may be granted the opportunity to be part of the relief that Jesus provides. So we see here in Scripture both a narrative and also a lesson for us that as those who cared for Simon's mother-in-law appealed to Jesus on her behalf, so might we appeal to Jesus on behalf of others. Luke does not mention, as Matthew and Mark do, that Jesus touched her hand. However, in the next verse, Luke does mention that Jesus laid hands on those who healed. We're going to return to that in a moment. While Luke does not specifically mention Jesus touching Simon's mother-in-law, he finds it important to note that Jesus rebuked not the woman, but the fever. The word rebuke can also mean reprove or admonish, to censor, uh, to speak seriously to, to warn, to punish. It can mean to command or give an order to. One who rebukes generally should have some sort of authority with which they could rebuke someone. We normally wouldn't go rebuking our boss, for example. Um, in Exodus 4.11, God tells Moses that it is he who makes someone mute or deaf or seeing or blind. That's 
there's four letters that the Lord said to Moses, this is what Moses is saying, well, Lord, I can't be the one to be your servant because I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not equipped right. And God said to him, through his made man's mouth, who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind, is it not I, the Lord? God asserts many times throughout Scripture that he has total and complete sovereignty over all things, including God. Some people are bothered by this. Yet, Scripture tells us in many cases where God himself afflicted someone, or in the case of Job, allowed him to be afflicted. Whether God passively allows sickness or causes it himself, as he did when he afflicted the Egyptians and in many other cases in Scripture, one thing must be clear in our minds God is sovereign. He can make sick and he can Jesus is demonstrating the power he has over illness. He simply gives the command, and the fever has no choice but to respond in obedience. Luke is clearly impressed enough by this that he makes clear that Jesus rebuked the fever. In the gospel, Jesus did a lot of rebuking. He rebuked the wind, as we saw last week, or last night, he rebuked demons. He also rebuked Peter and others, especially Peter uh, probably most strongly when he said, get behind me, Satan. Jesus did not rebuke Simon's mother-in-law. He rebuked the fever. Some have concluded that since the context surrounding these two verses, both before and after this, Jesus is rebuking terms of illness, but some have said, well, maybe she had a demon that was causing her illness. Now, Scripture does not say that. I would allow that as a possibility, but since it's not clearly stated that she had a demon, I think we should just focus on what we do know. This command of Jesus, this rebuking of the fever, is one of many examples we're going to be seeing as we continue through the Gospel of Luke of the power of Jesus' words. A question worth asking is whether believers should consider themselves, since they are in Christ, to have that same power. Here we must be careful. There are many who claim to have this power, but few can demonstrate it. They do not go to hospitals and empty it with the healing power of the Lord. Some say their faith is so strong they can heal anything. Yet, when it doesn't work out, they blame the victim, saying, well, they can't, couldn't be healed because of their lack of faith. Which is it? Should Christians command demons to flee and fevers to leave, like Jesus did? Well, some people point to scriptures like this in, towards the end of Mark, in chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, these signs will accompany those who believe, and in my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them, they will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. And they will also show you examples from acts of healings and exorcisms, but keep in mind, Jesus said this will be done in his name. And in Sunday school this morning, we were talking about this, the fact that when we're told to pray in Jesus' name, it means we're supposed to be praying in the sense that this is what he would be praying for. This is how his will would be done. I don't want to pray, Jesus, against your will, 
Uh, do this, but I'm praying in your name. So, Jesus does not give every believer unlimited power to speak evil, whether demons or disease. If he had, then Christians would already have eliminated all evil in the world simply by their works. And I actually saw a clip of a so-called evil when COVID first started spreading, and he commanded it to leave. And that was like one month into it, so how did that work out? It doesn't work out. If that was the case, where anything we ever said was just safely received, oh, then Christians would have already done it, right? Rather than speak as though we are God, though, let us do like those who have guilty Jesus on behalf of us. Nowhere in Scripture are we commanded to speak to demons or elevators. It's not something we're instructed to do. Now, there are examples of the apostles doing it, but we're not told we automatically should do that. Our prayers, our spiritual communication, should be addressed to God. Jude points out that even the archangel angel Michael did not pronounce judgment on the devil, but he says that the Lord rebuked the And we find this in Jude in verses 6 through 13. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. But left the property dwell in this time what the beast of fell. He kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious one. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil who was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment that said, the Lord But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. They are destroyed by all that they like unreasoning animals understand. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's terror and perished in the forest of their darkness. These are hidden reeds that you love, and they feast without, with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by wind, fruitless trees in late autumn, quite dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting out the foam of their own shame, wandering stars. Now, I don't have time to do a whole lesson on this section of Jude, but I believe it is a strong warning to those in our day who would claim the role of prophet or healer or destroyer of demons. Do not arrogantly assume you speak all words of Christ and feel his power over you. Rely not on your own faith or your own power, but appeal to You can trust that he will always be with you. He will not turn. I would not recommend you getting into conversations with the devil because you could end up like the sons of Sceva that we read about in Acts 19. It says some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus and Paul proclaim. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Stephen were doing this, but the evil spirit recognized them. Or answer them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? 
in whom the evil spirit was, leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Yes, we are to resist the devil, and he will flee. Scripture tells us that. But this does not mean getting into conversations with him. Conversations with Satan often lead people into deception. He is what deceived by the person. You and I are capable of being deceived. How then do we resist the devil? Not by telling him what to do, but by knowing God's word and relying on how God provides. We resist the devil every time we are subjected to temptation and our knowledge of God helps us to keep the temptation. Appeal to Jesus. And you cannot go wrong. Presumptuously assume that he's before him. You should admit. You and I are not Jesus. We are not apostles. We are not prophets. We appeal to Jesus and we resolve. He will not let down the faithful, but he will work all things for the good of those who love him. So be humble. I believe the humble person who appeals to Jesus is far more likely to see and experience the power of God than the one who claims to be a little God, who can speak with the same power as Christ himself. Any authority we have comes from him and can be taken away by him. So may we act humbly, relying on Jesus. So they appealed to Jesus, and he rebuked the fever and left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve him. Here we see the care of Jesus and also the immediacy and completeness of the healing. When people have been sick with a serious fever, even after the fever has broken, they usually have a long period of time to rest. Sometimes they're weakened for weeks after the fever is over. But here we see that Jesus commands the fever to have a complete healing effect on the woman. She immediately feels well enough, not just to sit up and enjoy a cup of coffee, but to get up and when we and others in the church are sick, should not our motivation to get better be I know this is our spoken on being sick or hurt. Sometimes when we're sick, all we can think about is that we want relief from the pain or discomfort we're going through. But our appeal to Christ for ourselves and others should be to have healing for the purpose of service to his kingdom. That includes, of course, service to our families. We want to get better so we can get back to work and provide for our families. They are our first ministry. Peter's mother-in-law was healed and immediately began to serve them. What happens next shows how quickly word will spread when something amazing like this happens. Going to verse 40 and 41. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick of various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Christ. Now, remember what had happened. It was the Sabbath. He had done the casting out of the demons of the synagogue. But it was the Sabbath, so no work was to be done. And to the Jews, this would also include traveling certain distances. It would certainly include carrying a sick person or a crippled person. But the Sabbath ends at sunset, so as soon as the sun was setting, already the people were bringing their sick, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. So we have seen the power of Jesus to rebuke demons, to rebuke fevers, and here we see the 
Sadly, our world has become so depraved that many people are afraid to even get the touch. My biology teacher, uh, professor at college, told about his grandson who was adopted from an orphanage in another country. And in that orphanage, most of the children had very little contact with humans. They were not held, they were not cuddled as babies, they were not comforted by human beings. They were basically all in individual cribs. The babies who do not have the loving touch of a caretaker not only develop a discomfort with touch, such as hugs, but their tactile senses are affected themselves. You see, we need human contact with each other. I read an article about how many babies and toddlers who grew up in these COVID years have developmental issues already showing. Some children went through the first two years of their life not learning to read expressions on faces because they never saw an unmasked face outside their home. We need eye contact and to see lips and faces of people we are communicating with to be able to understand since much of communication is nonverbal. And we need to be present with other people to see them, to feel the touch of others. And Jesus understood this wisdom. Before Jesus began his ministry, touch was not considered uh, in the prayers of this for the sick. But Jesus laid hands on people. And he also, as Matthew and Mark reported, took Simon's mother-in-law by his hand. Jesus touched people, not only spiritually, but physically touched them. He understood this need for humans to have physical contact with each other. After all, he created us with that need. So even in ministry today, we're often warned, don't, don't be careful, don't hug children at the youth event or the kids' uh, church or something like that. We're cautioned against it. We're to protect ourselves from potential accusations or lawsuits. And that's a sad thing. But Jesus instituted touch as part of his healing ministry. And this is still a part of our prayer for healing. When we appeal to Jesus on behalf of those we ask to, uh, who ask to be prayed for, in accordance with Scripture, we anoint them with oil, which naturally requires touch. And next week, we're going to examine the visible toll this took on Jesus. Ministry takes something out of us. So Jesus goes out the next day to get away from people for a bit. In verse 41, we see... These same healings involve demon possession, some of them. We will not conclude from this that all sickness involves a person having a demon possession or a demon oppression, but certainly we must acknowledge that in some cases, sickness is linked to the spiritual condition of a person. I would not claim it as a biblical concept, but often people who are in helping occupations, such as counseling, divide our health into three categories, emotional, spiritual and physical. And these three areas are interrelated. If you are experiencing emotional trauma, your spiritual and your physical health are going to be affected to some degree. If you're spiritually sick, your emotions and your physical health will most certainly be disinfected. And if you are physically sick, your emotional and spiritual health are affected as well. And there may be some exceptions to this. A person who is very mature in their faith 
who's endured many trials of faith and experienced the faithfulness of God, when faced with physical ailments, they may remain emotionally and physically sound. I'd say it's a fairly small percentage. Most of us have some kind of effect where we're bothered spiritually and we're physically hurt. This is a blessing, though, that comes only uh, those exceptions who, who are able to stay above it physically and emotionally, I mean spiritually and emotionally, when they're physically hurting. That's a blessing that only comes because they made it through so many previous and even then, someone facing their own mortality may have brief moments of worry or fear. But thankfully, God has not required us a perfect faith that never wavers. Yet even the faith we have is a gift from Him. And the normal way that we grow in faith is through trials and perseverance. As James wrote, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, Unless steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the last verse we're going to consider this morning is that verse 41. Demons came out of many crying, You are the Son of God, but he rebuked them. Wouldn't allow them to speak because they knew he was Christ. Now this might seem strange in a way. Why did Jesus not want to have the demons cry out? Well, we're not given a reason other than that they knew he was the Christ, but perhaps we can gather more information from two other texts. First, Mark 11, I'm sorry, Mark 3, 11, and 12. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down for him and cried out, you're the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So apparently this was a thing that happened at least some, with some frequency. And then in Acts 16 and 17, we read about this young lady who was possessed and was following Paul around and and was crying out, these men are servants of the most high God and proclaim you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days, Paul having become greatly annoyed. Oh, it's so nice to know I'm not the first person in that to be <laughs> Paul turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Came out of the very hour. In each of these cases, it seems that Jesus and Paul objected to evil spirits proclaiming things about Jesus. Perhaps it's because the source of the message has a lot to do with how that message is received. We know that we are to be cautious of false teachers. There's, there are those who claim to speak truth about Jesus, but twist scripture and entrap people into a false faith and a false gospel. So Jesus rebuked these demons and would not allow them to speak. Some have conjectured that perhaps Jesus did this also because his time to be known was not yet come. It's what he said to his mother in John 2, 4, when she was concerned about the wine running out. And he said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Well, since it is Mother's Day, and many of you have plans to be with your mothers, I will keep this a little shorter and wrap up quickly here. Remember, this miracle shows that Jesus cares for mothers-in-law. You may, you, you know, you have to be a mother before you become a mother. So what have we learned about this day, this evening, that Luke recalls for us? The power of Jesus was displayed in both the casting out of demons and the healing. Jesus only needed his voice to do the work. Yet even that took a physical toll, which we're going to examine more next week, Lord will. We see that an appeal was made to Jesus on behalf of the sick woman. 
We are blessed to be able to appeal to Jesus on behalf of others as well. He has the power to speak to his illness itself and the gentleness to touch those in need of them. It didn't take long before many people came and heard of the healer, and this brought many more to, to seek his healing power. So what has Jesus healed us from? He has given us our salvation, cleansed us from our sin, like those who spread the word about his healing power, we ought to share what he has done for us. And yet, sometimes people want the smaller gifts Christ offers, but will refuse to seek the greater gift of salvation. Kent Hughes wrote this about this passage, quote, That was a poignant, memorable night. However, it was not without a hint of tragedy. Those who are ill of body know what they need, go to great lengths to receive it. But sadly, people who will break their necks to get to Jesus the physician will scarcely move to reach Jesus As Alexander McLaren said, often offer men the smaller gifts and they will run over one another in their scramble for them. But offer them the highest and they will scarcely hold out a languid hand. As much as the power of Jesus to heal was confirmation of the truth of the gospel, even some who were healed physically never repent of sin and make him Savior and Lord. Jesus said not even a person being raised from the dead will be sufficient proof for God. And this is why the ministry of the Word of God is far superior to the ministry focused on the eyes of healing. God certainly does heal. We should pray in faith for healing, making that appeal to him for ourselves and others. Yet the ultimate gift of God is the faith to believe the gospel. When this faith comes and a heart of stone is made into a heart of flesh, then we see a greater miracle. For one dead in their sins has been raised to life at the last in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we 